Paul, thank you very much indeed, and thank you to everybody for joining me today. My name is Nick Barrett. I'm a 13th century historian. Uh, that doesn't make me very old, it just means I look at very old stuff. But I've also had some experience researching genealogy in a former life when I worked on programmes such as Who Do You Think You Are? So this is very much a fusion of the two things, something that I'm passionate about, which will be the records, as well as in many ways, the ways of applying them to find out more about ourselves. For the purpose of this talk, I've broken the webinar down into four main areas and medieval can be liberally interpreted to mean anything pretty much before civil registration in England and Wales in 1837. But I will be focusing first of all on some of the practical information, the nuts and bolts about how to access and read a lot of the material that you will encounter and there are some issues with that. I then want to spend a bit of time looking at the structure of society because in many ways that will determine how feasible it is to find people and link them back to previous generations. A lot of your work will be based around key ancestors who were of a certain social status. And so we need to look at the way they lived, the sort of land that they would have held, and the structure of society. I also want to focus on some of the key administrative records, which may at first glance seem quite dull, but actually are stuffed full of names of both people and places I'm going to also tell you a little bit about the way people lived their lives and some of the issues that they faced. And finally, a section on law and justice. Our ancestors often fell foul of the law or took each other to court. And one of the key bones of contention would often be property or inheritance. And so you'll find a lot of material of a genealogical nature in our records here at the National Archives. But let's start with practical information. Uh, there we have... Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a fantastic 11th, 12th century monk. He's going to guide us on our way. We're going to start with some realistic expectations. And I think the first thing we have to say is it can sometimes be very disappointing. We're not all descended from key royal or blue-blooded ancestors, unlike Matthew Pinsent or Boris Johnson on Who Do You Think You Are? They often have what's known as a gateway ancestor, someone they find in their family tree who's of sufficient status to be able to do a lot of genealogy. They may well have found that they're linked to a lesser noble, which then means you can follow existing pedigrees and heraldic links way back in time to a king, possibly usually Edward I, Edward III, someone who had lots and lots of children, both legitimate and illegitimate. So you're not always going to be able to find one of these gateway ancestors, and you may not always be able to verify the links that you need. Genealogy is about establishing common bonds between the generations, and sometimes these break down. The records aren't always sensitive enough. So you need to understand the historical context in which you're working and the limitations of some of the source material, which we'll pick up throughout the webinar. One of the key things as well is your knowledge of geography. People were quite often played to, tied to a particular place, either a manor, which we'll explore in a minute, or an estate, a county, a region. They tended not to travel that far afield unless they were part of a maritime community, in which case they would often sail the seven seas. But equally important about knowing where someone lived is to adopt the standard techniques of going back in time logically. And so the first thing you need to do is to establish some key people using civil registration and census into perhaps more familiar sources of a local level. Parish registers, for example. I'm not going to spend any time talking about those. They should be relatively familiar already. Private material, again, using wills, which quite often go back into the 14th or 15th century, these are fairly familiar sources. I want to focus on some of the lesser-known material today. 
You also have to have a reality check about status, wealth and occupation. Certain people simply cannot be traced. Many of us break down in our family trees when we find agricultural labourers working in the fields in the 19th century and it's very hard to trace them any further back. And this is often the case when you're working back into the medieval period. The bulk of the population will always remain very hard to identify positively and even harder to trace back generation by generation. But you may well spot a few names and you certainly will understand more about the life and the times in which our ancestors lived, even if you can't positively identify all of them. So don't despair. Another reality check is the paleography, the way the documents are written. I can't read what it says. I mean, this document here is a very good example. It's a feat of fine. It's written in Latin, and it is actually quite densely populated with words which, to the untrained eye, can be quite tricky to read. So you need to gradually tune your eye in away from printed or modern text into often illegible or faded handwriting, which was quite often heavily abbreviated. So you'll find that words are shortened into fairly standard formats. You'll find that spelling will change and that many letters will look the same, C's and T's, B's and V's, and in many cases I's, M's, N's and V's, when written closely together, can just be very hard to distinguish. So what we tend to suggest is use printed transcriptions or digital scans which bring greater clarity, or perhaps join one of these online tutorials. Uh, you don't always have to use a quill pen, for example. You have got a lot of modern material to hand to allow you to understand, either through transcripts or through really good quality paleographical uh, images, what a document is saying. So there's a couple of resources there. We've got one ourselves showing you how paleography works. It's the same thing with language. Again, this document looks quite complicated. It's actually in English, and it's describing the goods and chattels of a particular individual. Um, taken from his house, so it's linked to a sort of inventory. And you have to bear in mind that the language of a document could change very rapidly. A lot of the material we'll be talking about is in Latin, which was the official language of medieval government, again heavily abbreviated. And we've created a Latin for beginners course on our website for you to have a look at. But you'll also find increasingly from certainly, you know, 13th and particularly 14th century, Anglo-Norman French being used for more informal documents, particularly communications between people. So you need to have a little smattering of Anglo-Norman French as well. And you'll find very few documents are actually written in English, certainly in a format that we'd recognise before the late 14th century. So you find this increases as you go into the 15th and 16th century. You also have problems identifying the names of individuals because surnames will change or fluctuate over time. In fact, they only really became fixed from the 14th century onwards for tax purposes. And you tend to have four main groups. Locative, which is linked to a place where someone comes from. David Beckham being a good example. You may well find a descriptive name about a particular characteristic. My own name, Nick Barrett. Barrett is a legal term. It relates to spreading malicious gossip and false rumour about people. So oh, clearly my ancestors were a very nasty bunch. Occupation. Baker, Smith, Wheelwright, for example. Telling you a bit about what someone did and then patronymic, which is where you take part of your father's name, and that varies over time. So Williamson, son of William, is a good example of that. But you will find that surnames are spelt phonetically, so they will change throughout the records. So chambers could be spent in any number of different ways, including the Latin de camera, and the same applies to first names as well. And people were often described quite informally, 
either from where they were from or what they did. And place names are also from, um, subject to the same level of confusion. So there's a good example there for Nottingham. Snottingham or just snot with a variety of other spellings as well. These are going to change and fluctuate throughout time. So just be aware that what you're looking at may look very unfamiliar compared to the modern spellings. You have equally problems with dating documents. When exactly did something happen? Because different dating conventions were used over time. You often find documents referring to something in the regnal year, i.e. the year in which the king on the throne was reigning, as opposed to our AD system. So 9 Henry 3 actually relates to what we'd know today as 1225. And you have a variety of other conventions used to refine the date further. The exchequer year and legal terms were often used to break the year into chunks, legal terms being Michaelmas, Hillary, Easter and Trinity, so particular phases of the year, often movable feasts. And you occasionally in ecclesiastical documents find references to the papal or the episcopal year, the year in which the bishop was on his throne as well. Trying to find out the exact date when something happens means you have to understand the pattern of medieval life, which was highly religious and ecclesiastical. And so events were usually referred to in association to the nearest festival or feast day. So the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, for example, seven days afterwards will give you the actual date today that we'd look at. And we also have the switch to the Gregorian calendar in 1752 with various impacts. Firstly, that 12 days were taken out of 1752, so the 2nd of September is followed by the 14th. And the fact that you have the move from the start of the year, from the 25th of March, back to the 1st of January, leading to a change in style. So the example there um, shows that there's a variety of ways you can describe the 30th of January. Old style would be in 1648, but the way we'd refer to it today, because it comes before the 25th of March, would be 1649. It is complicated, but luckily we have a book, Cheney's Handbook of Dates, that will help you with all of this. And an example there, which is in the text, and Vicesimo nono die januarii, agna regni, regis henrici septimum, decimo septimus, translates as the 29th day of January, in the year of the reign of King Henry the Seventh, 17, so that's the 17th year of his reign. That can be converted to 29th of January, 1502, using Cheney's Handbook of Dates. So bear with it, there are some complications here. So let's look at some of the records and the way that they are structured. Section 2 relates to the social hierarchy, starting with a diagram that may well be familiar to many of you, particularly those who went to school and were taught about the feudal system with the king at the top. All land from Doomsday Book onwards was held by the crown. William the Bastard came over, killed Harold at Hastings, and then effectively took over holding of all land in England. And then he parceled it out to the tenants-in-chief, the nobles, who held their land directly from the king. The nobles would reward their, their particular followers, and they would then effectively form a class below, so on and so forth, until you get to the bottom rung of the ladder. The vast majority of people in the country, the peasants, who effectively worked the land in return for board and lodging, if they were lucky. That tends to be where most of our ancestors end up, unfortunately, and makes them much harder to trace. But the way the feudal system worked was very important to the way you go about looking for your ancestors because the basic unit administratively was a manor 
and these were often brought together to form a state. And this is what would have been handed down from the king to the tenants-in-chief, the tenants-in-chief to their sub-tenants, all the way down, uh, down to the bottom rung. And the way in which land was passed from person to person quite often was linked to either inheritance or a conveyancing system, which we'll come on to. But it was a highly hierarchical class structure with the aristocrats at the top, such as this wonderful family, dancing and singing, no doubt, in their finery, to the peasants and the serfs, effectively slaves, right at the bottom, as we have here, uh, working, toiling in the fields, and if you believe Monty Python, eating dirt and mud. By the time you get to the 15th century, the system has changed slightly, and you have a system known as bastard feudalism, where people were paid to be retainers of a local lord. So there's a slightly different social contract. But for most of what we're going to talk about, this hierarchical system based around manners is absolutely key because most of your ancestors would be linked to a manor or an estate in which a manor forms a larger part. So let's have a little bit, uh, a bit of a look at the medieval manor. This was the cornerstone of local administration and rural life. Everybody was tied to the manor through customs. And these are quite often socio-economic ties. A manor wasn't a distinct geographical unit, although many of them had a bounds. It was basically all the people who owed service and rent to the lord of the manor in exchange for holding land. Freehold lands was held free of the customs, so effectively it could be bought and sold. But they were still manorial tenants. They still owed a certain form of service, of allegiance, to the lord of the manor. Copyhold land was slightly different. You had to perform service at regular times throughout the year to hold your land. But you didn't own it as such. At your death, it had to be handed back to the lord of the manor, who would then parcel it out to the next person. Usually your eldest son, but sometimes not. That would depend on the customs. And the lord would usually keep some lands um, for themselves, and this could be often leased out. So the lord's domain land could often be leased out to improve their rent. There's a typical representation of a medieval manor. This comes from Chertsey Abbey, and let's not forget the church was a major landholder as well and would often act as a lord of a manor. And you'll see, okay, this is very stylistic. You'll find a few large fields with possibly some standard kit, a watermill to grind corn, an abbey of a church, a tithe barn, and at the top, in this case, the town of Leyland where many people would live. But it's a very rural community that we're looking at here. Most people would work or be tied to the land. Most transactions were carried out in the manorial court, presided over by the bailiff or the Lord's steward. There'd be two main sorts of baronial court held, a court baron or court leet. And this is where a couple of key things would take place. Firstly, judicial administration. Anyone who infringed the terms of the customs of the manor, or trespassed on other people's lands, or owed money, or were basically not keeping um, the customs properly upheld, they would be brought before the court and then they'd be fined or immersed. They'd have to pay money across to the Lord. So effectively, this is very local level justice and many people would be caught up in this. So even if your ancestor was not a manorial tenant as such, you can go looking for the names of people and the sorts of things that they got up to in the manorial courts. You'll also find that many manorial tenants, particularly copyhold tenants, are recorded in the court rolls. These are fantastic because they're quite often linked to the admission and surrender of the land. Land is key. So a manorial tenant dies, the land is surrendered back to the lord of the manor, 
and the next claimant would come forward and they would recite the terms on which they would like to hold the land. The Lord would then grant permission and they would be admitted into that land. And all of this was recorded. So you've got an unbroken chain based around land of manorial tenants. So you can see where the land was inherited from generation to generation, which means you can start to piece together basic genealogy. And there's a typical court roll. At the top, you've got the manorial jurors, and they were often the freeholders. So even if your ancestors did not hold copyhold land, they may be listed amongst the freeholders at the top. They would have to preside over every court. And then underneath, in this case in Latin, you'd find the terms of that court, the business that was conducted, including many of these admissions and surrenders of land. To help administer the system, many lords would commission surveys trying to work out who owed rent or who owed a particular service and how large the manor was. And one of the key things is a rental, which I'll just quickly move on to. This one here is a good example. Slightly later, this will be after 1732, when many official documents moved back to English. And you'll find many names listed here. So this rental gives you a snapshot of all the people within that manor. Moving back, you also find a lot of expenditure on the manor as well. The upkeep of buildings and roads, on the charge and discharge system. So the steward would be charged with bringing in a certain amount of rent, which he'd account for, and then have to discharge some of that in expenditure. So again, you get a snapshot of the economics of that particular unit. And many people will be listed here as well. So it's a good way of working between the court roles, finding out what was actually going on at a local level. Manorial documents are scattered. And to help bring them together, the Manorial Documents Register exists. This is predominantly online, and there's a link there to our website. This will soon form part of our new discovery service. And it simply is a listing of where the court rolls and other material is kept, and it tells you the archive and the archival reference, mainly focusing on court rolls. And as I said, many counters are now online. The remainder that aren't are being worked on with the Federation of Family History Societies, and they are viewed on-site at the National Archives here at Kew. As I've mentioned, property and land is the key way of tra tracing ancestors. And we have thousands of property transactions in our collections, and there are tens if not hundreds of thousands more in county archives. Many conveyances, or the transfer of property from one person to the next, would be done through a deed or an indenture. And this would convey a right, property or privilege from one individual to the next. They're scattered in private collections, county record offices, some here at the National Archives, mainly Crown Estates, and occasionally institutional libraries. But in addition, we hold enrolments of property transactions, fictitious lawsuits such as feet of fines, where the two parties would fictitiously go to court and contest the land, and a judgment will be made. And that judgment would then be recorded in court, so it effectively is a means of reference in case there's any dispute further down the line. And this is where the indenture system comes in, because three copies of that agreement will be made, and they will be cut accordingly, so that the buyer would take one copy, the seller would take another, and the third part, the foot, would end up in court. And if you fitted them all together, it should be a perfect match. So it was a way of preventing property fraud. And these are usually indexed by County Record Society publications, and we've got some indexes here as well. 
And you also find some of the major enrolments that we've got here, close roles and charter roles, are full of property transactions listing the names of individuals. You can also start looking at heraldic devices, coats of arms, which were starting out as the means of identifying an individual in battle to their lord, and how they developed into quite elaborate ways of tracking genealogy. The important thing to remember is that the coat of arms was given to an individual and their heirs, not to the surname. So the surname may change, but the coat of arms could continue down a family line. And they were often elaborated upon through marriage. So in many ways, it's a visual genealogy that you can use. Some of the earliest that were found come from the 12th century. In many ways, the College of Arms is the best place to go to have a look for these. It's the modern body that grants coats of arms. And it's also got many of the original records of heraldic visitations, which were the Crown's attempt to capture people who were able to bear arms, sometimes for status purposes, sometimes to get them to do administrative tasks. From the Tudor period onwards, this was a major link to the gentrification of elements of society, and people had to prove that they were able to bear these arms. So the evidences have been gathered together. The originals are at the College of Arms, and many of these returns have now been published by the Harleian Society, which you can find in most good libraries. Linked to coats of arms are pedigrees. These are pre-created genealogies. The unpublished ones are scattered, again, through many archives. British Library have a very large collection. The Society of Genealogists, of course, have got and collected many pedigrees over the centuries. College of Arms as well, and we hold a variety of pedigrees too. And there are some standard publications which have created the pedigrees of well-established or noble families, so Burke's Peerage, De Brett's Peerage of the Realm, for example. There's one of ours. This actually comes from a KB27, a court case, so obviously a proof of descent was required. And it should be a fairly familiar line diagram showing you how family uh, links connected from one to the other. Uh, if you can see on there, you've got next to the names of Alicia, the bottom left, nicked, N-I-C-H, which means nihil, so she had no issue. And at the top, Wills is exactly the same. So Paul, William and Alice had no children, but Cecilia and Alabilla both had children, and you can see their descent moving forward in time across the page from left to right. There's Bernard again. We're now going to go into government and local administration. And again, it's important to get a sense of the structure and overview of society. At the top was the crown, and the king surrounded himself by his wisest, or in many cases not so wise, advisers who would form the council, and together they would determine policy. In turn, they would form the court, which was the royal household and all the staff that were attended upon it. And certainly from 1265 onwards, regular consultation with other elements of society took place through Parliament. To help the bureaucracy and administration from the central court into the regions, you had a chancery. This was effectively the writing house, the bureaucratic centre of Crown government. And this enabled the Crown and its various officials to send out orders into local areas. And this required a process of authentication and enrolment. So before anything could happen, you needed to get the royal authority for it to do so. And this was done through a system of seals and writs. 
So a writ would be issued, it would then be sealed, and then that seal would give it the authority to be enacted. That would then be sent out. A copy would be made, so you've got a point of reference. The local version would then be given to a sheriff or local official. They would then summon the relevant local people to do the king's bidding, and justice would be done, etc. And then there'd be a report sent back into the centre, which would also be filed. So this is the birth of bureaucracy. From the late 12th century onwards, we've got all of these records. It's a really important way of establishing links between the centre and locality. This was backed up by the Crown's requirement to raise money to govern effectively. And the main organ of government was the Exchequer, which handled the receipt of money and also its audits. And increasingly, the bulk of this came from taxation. And of course, that's one of the two things that we're all certain of encountering at some point in our lives, death and taxes and many thousands of people are recorded in the tax records that we hold at the National Archives going back into the 13th century. Equally important is that relationship between Crown and local government. And we have many records relating to royal officials and the way that they governed at a very local level, including increasing numbers of inquiries into local affairs, inquisitions for example, and increasingly the management of Crown lands We've talked about the manorial system and how this was the fundamental administrative structure that most people encountered from the Norman Conquest right the way through into the 20th century. Uh, the fuel system in its old format was only extinguished in the 1920s when copyhold land was finally extinguished. So it's a very long running way of managing local affairs. And crown lands formed part of this. So if you had property or family members who form part of a crown estate, and don't forget large chunks of Cornwall are all crown estate, you're going to find really detailed records relating to the administration of that land and how it was governed. And let's not forget there are a number of areas across the country which had a semi-autonomous jurisdiction. Palatinates, for example, the Palatinate of Chester, Durham, Lancaster, these were areas which had their own system of justice, administration, land management, and so there are separate records for them as well. I've listed here a few key places that you might start to like looking because they're very rich in names, plus they've got excellent means of access. They usually, and certainly for the earlier period, have printed calendars. A calendar is a summary of the records contained in that set of records. So patent rolls, for example, we've got from the early 13th century right the way through to date. But the calendars take us into the 14th or 15th century with some name indexes extending from that period into the 20th century. And the thing about a letter patent is that it was sent out open for everyone to see with the seal giving it its authentication hanging loose. So this tended to be very official business that everyone was intended to hear about. So it could be the appointment of a local official, or it could be a proclamation from government, or the requirement to uh, assess how many people were of fighting age. This was a key line of communication between the Crown and the locality. And we have calendars and the original records here at Kew. A close roll was slightly different because as the name suggests, the letter that was sent out was closed and then sealed, so that you had to break the seal to read its content. So it tended to be addressed to very specific individuals. So it may well be an appointment or a request or, a, uh, or an instruction to go out and do something. But they often include very important details about families and their possessions. 
So, for example, if the sheriff is instructed to go out and seize the property of a crown debtor who's not paying up, it may well list the name of the individual, their family, their debts, that sort of thing. So these are the two types of correspondence that's flowing out from the centre and a record of everything was kept in these rolls. We also have a number of other ones which are calendared and published and easy to read, fine rolls for example. This has actually been the subject of a really good digitisation project with um, the collaboration of King's College London and others. And you can now see the fine rolls from Henry III's period, so early 13th century, online. You can see the original documents, you can see transcripts, and you can also see a translation into English. So that's a really good example of how you can use a transcript and a translation to understand the handwriting and the Latin in that text. Fine rolls tended to be transactions with the Crown, and again, there's a lot of really good administrative history there, touching upon individuals, their lives, and the way they conducted their business. And there are other publications as well, so Liberato rolls, Pipe rolls, Memoranda rolls. These are all major sets of records where large parts of the content have been published. Possibly the best source, though, is at the end, State Papers Online. This is a new venture, and at the moment the subscription is through academic institutions, but it brings together images and transcriptions of some of the key state papers from Henry VIII's period onwards, certainly into the early 18th century. And this is the period in which bureaucracy expanded ever further, and you get a lot more individual correspondence, quite often related to family papers. Very interesting during the Civil War, when a lot of royalist land was sequestered and taken into parliamentarian hands to be assessed and sold off. And so this is a really good means of access to those records. If you don't have an institutional subscription, you can also look at the calendars of state papers themselves, again, printed transcripts and summaries of these records, which are part of British history online. And we have all of this material printed and original documents here at Kew as well. So it's well worth a browse because you find some amazing insights into what life was like. This extract here um, is a refusal to take the oath and it's written by various individuals um, and it's written to the justices of the peace of the county of um, Berkshire and the borough of Reading and they're clearly refusing to take the oath that's been imposed upon them and the text describes in great detail that they would rather be martyred for their conscience than adhere to something that the Lord Almighty will not agree with. So there's a statement of conscience, they're refusing to take the oath of allegiance and they're prepared to take the consequences. So this tells you not just about who the people were, but also what they thought, believed and were prepared to do in the name of their religious beliefs. My pet subject, state finance and taxation, but it's great for family names, perhaps less so for connectivity, but at least you know who was living in an area at a time. Tax has always been with us, but it started to become more organised from the late 13th century onwards, when there were regular grants of lay subsidies or assessments of people's goods and possessions, and increasingly poll taxes. Remember the poll tax riots from 1989-1990? Well again, that's been with us for at least 600 years, which is simply a tax on the number of people living somewhere, as opposed to a lay subsidy, which is more about how much of someone's wealth could be taxed. In many ways, the forerunner today's income tax. We may grumble about paying our taxes, but let's be thankful that our ancestors did. 
because we now have fantastic lists of names of people who are liable for taxation, parish by parish. So again, think geography, think status. Many of these have been published by county record societies, but we do have a wonderful finding aid on our discovery system, E179 database, and this allows you to search by place, by date, by tax type, and to restrict it, if you want, to those records that simply have the names of individuals that appear. So if you're looking for some of your ancestors with an unusual surname in the 14th or 15th century, for say Hampton in Middlesex, you can just look for tax returns for Hampton and find out how many of them contain names and then come here and have a look at the records themselves. Equally important are the interaction between Crown and local community through government surveys. Quite often linked to day-to-day -day governance but also raising armies and the majority of these will contain the names of individuals and quite often they will be the poorest manorial tenants so everybody can often get scooped up in these records. Perhaps the most famous survey is Doomsday Book, the bedrock of modern bureaucracy and record keeping again. Many people have traced their family names back into Doomsday. But there are other later surveys as well that start to move well into the early modern, if not modern period, linked to the number of people living on a piece of land and what sort of rights the Crown had over them. Particularly important are Inquisition's post-mortem, very different to a modern post-mortem examination. Here, assessors would go round into the local community on the death of a tenant-in-chief and work out what land was held from the Crown, what it was worth, and therefore how much money the King could take from the next of kin. And as part of the assessment, a check would be made to see how old the next of kin would be when their father had died. If they were under the age of 21, they'd be taken into wardship and their lands would be administered on their behalf. Once they reached 21, they'd have to pay a fine and then they could enter into their lands. So this was an important way of gauging who was meant to inherit next. And the Inquisitions go into great detail about this and quite often will, will recite people's wills. Equally, Inquisitions add quod damnum to what damage are about local patronage and how families would bequeath their land or possessions to support their local church so that they would spend less time in purgatory before eternal salvation. And so again, this will tell you a little bit about the connection between an individual and the sort of amounts they were granting and possibly a local church or chantry. So you might find that that's where they were buried or where they patronised the church through other gifts and monumental inscriptions could start to lead you to other links to the family tree. The final section is law and justice. And this is where you need to start to understand a bit more about the judicial system in its own right. In the 11th and 12th century, there was a move away from deciding disputes through trial by combat or ordeal. We've all heard about the dunking of witches to see whether they floated or sank. If they sank, they weren't. If they floated, they were. So you got burnt anyway. Seems a bit of an unfair way of doing things. So we have the introduction of attorneys and solicitors and the idea of trial by judicial combat, i.e. move from physical fighting into a contest in a court. And one of the chief beneficiaries of this was the Crown, who gradually took over more and more of the local justice, which we saw already at manorial level, and brought it within the realms of the Crown Courts. There were various jurisdictions. We have the Crown Justice, particularly criminal, 
the forest, which had its own administrative boundaries, and the forest law was very different to other laws, borough and manorial at local level, and of course ecclesiastical jurisdictions, the right to claim clergy, which got um, Thomas Becket into all sorts of problems with Henry II. Generally, though, our records break down into civil and criminal cases, and they were heard according to a variety of codes, the main ones being common law or equity, which I'll have a look at now. Here's Royal Justice in Action, by the way. This is the Court of King's Bench. You've got the gloriously Crimson Road Justices at the top. All of the scribes and clerks of the courts below them. And that shows you just why we've got so many parchment and paper documents in our collections. And there at the bottom, looking rather sorry for themselves, in manacles, getting beaten by a big stick, are the prisoners themselves. A quick overview of criminal justice and the common law civil suits. The Central Criminal Court was King's Bench, and this was reserved for the most serious cases. Based in Westminster, increasingly from the 13th and 14th centuries onwards, most of the records are here in series KB 26 and 27, broken down chronologically from 1272. A lot of civil cases were heard before the Court of Common Pleas, again based in Westminster, which had, by the 13th century, evolved into the key heart of government bureaucracy. The early records are once again in KB 26, but because of the increasing volume of business, they were hived off into their own record series, CP 40. And there are a variety of ways of getting access to these records. There are some indexes, but most of these records are described in more detail via our research guides online. Bearing in mind that justice spread across the whole country, many people did not fall before the Westminster courts, itinerant justices were often sent out to deliver the king's will. Initially through the general heir, which was held roughly every seven years, and the records are in just one, and that would hear civil and criminal cases, and increasingly from 1274, predetermined assize circuits, where justices would be sent out around three or four counties twice a year, to hear all the criminal and civil cases, referring up to the King's Bench, some of the more serious material, but often sitting in judgment at the local level. And then anything that didn't fall within these sort of areas would go down to a much local level, quarter sessions presided over by justices of the peace and eventually magistrates, who would pick up quite a lot of the business of the old manorial courts. You might also want to look at our research guides for what happened to some of the punishments, the outlawry roles, for example, if you were put outside the law and became as we hear with Robin Hood, an outlaw, where you would live, what you would do, where you would be picked up, and some of the records that we've got. Coroner's roles, very unusual deaths in series just two. And don't forget the point I made earlier about semi-autonomous jurisdictions. There are separate courts for the Palatinates of Durham, Lancaster, Chester, and also the Duchy of Lancaster, and eventually Cornwall as well. Perhaps more from a genealogical perspective, it's the equity courts that we need to turn to if we want to find out more about our ancestors and what they were doing. This is a different style of legal process. It's mainly relating to a private suit where no crime as such, no offence against the statute, has been committed. However, some sort of wrongdoing has been alleged. And so a resolution is sought using evidence by refining a point of argument and using evidence to back it up rather than precedent, what has happened before will determine what happens next, which is very much part of the common law. And as a result, a variety of courts were set up that would use this equity process to determine 
civil disputes. And this is where you find a lot of inheritance or family property contested vigorously. There was a standard procedure. A bill of complaints would be brought to court by the plaintiff, alleging some wrongdoing by the defendant. The defendant would then be asked to answer and produce a written statement saying why the bill of complaint was wrong. When that had been received, the plaintiff would then have a rejoinder saying, well, actually, the answer isn't right because... And so you're using this process to refine the point of law to two or three key things. The justices would then say, OK, well, we need to get more information. They'd send out interrogatories, which were a list of questions, to local people who knew about the people or the dispute or the property, who would then be recorded putting down their answers to those questions or providing their depositions or swearing an affidavit. And these would all be brought back into court alongside other pieces of evidence such as a pedigree or a will or a marriage agreement or title deeds. And then the masters of court would write up reports and eventually make a final decree or order for more information to be brought to the court. Some court suits were settled out of court, but many went to a final decree. And this process is standard for all equity suits. So there's a vast amount of information, many of which can be tied to families or individuals supported by really key genealogical resources, such as the pedigrees and the wills I've mentioned. One of the key courts would be the Court of Chancery, brought before the Lord Chancellor, and the volume of business expanded dramatically from the 16th and 17th century onwards, a wide range of litigants, many of which relate to inheritance and property dispute. Most of the records now are being catalogued so that you can search by name and increasingly by place and by the, the nature of the matter in dispute. But there are also other equity courts that we're working on here as well. Exchequer, for example, was meant to relate to crown debtors, but in many cases just simply crown tenants would bring their lawsuits before the Exchequer to be heard in a very similar way. Star Chamber emerged from petitions to the Privy Council, so-called because sittings were heard in the painted Star Chamber, so the court took its name from that room. With the increase of this style of equity justice, it was an expensive business, and so there was a feeling that poorer elements of society were not being given access to the justice they deserved. So the Court of Requests was set up, which was meant to be a lot cheaper so it was aimed at poor people who were perhaps being intimidated or squeezed out by their wealthy landlords, etc. So that was established from 1483, although we've only got records from 1485. And finally, wards and liveries, augmentation and the Palatinate Courts, many of these followed a similar process of bill pleading using the techniques of equity, evidence-based, to determine these disputes. Here's an example of a chancery um, answer. Uh, this actually is the answer of the abbot of the monastery of Bermondsey to the bill of complaint of Ellen Jackson widows. So that tells us a bit more about Ellen Jackson for a start. The said abbot say it, that the said bill is insufficient to deliver unto, etc, etc. So you get quite a lot of legal jargon, but the great thing about many of these equity records is that they are in English. So you don't have to worry so much about the Latin Although, as you can see here, the paleography, the handwriting can be quite tricky. Although, as with all these records, once you get your eye in, the words do start to jump out from the page a bit more. And finally, the stuff I haven't had time to talk about. Military ancestors. We're used to tracing our ancestors in the modern period through service records, musters, pay lists, 
a whole range of different sources, but there are a plethora of materials and resources for earlier military ancestors. We have navy lists listing the mariners on board ships sailing off to the Hundred Years' War, for example. We have particulars of account listing all the various archers who went out and fought. So there's a huge amount of material, including Tudor and Stuart militia lists, so assessing all the people living in a particular parish who would have been raised for civil defence, that we have as well. And there's a very good research guide about early, early modern and medieval military resources for tracing ancestors. We've talked predominantly so far about the manorial system and agrarian life, but of course many people followed a trade, occupational profession, and so you might want to look for a guild or livery company record. Many um, survive in the guild halls and the city of London, but many provincial towns would have had their, old their own important guild-based records as well. So if your ancestor lived in a town, check to see what their occupation was. They may well have been part of a guild. And equally, many people were granted the freedom of a city. And so you have registers, plus also lists of important local officials, such as mayoral registers as well. Many of these exist in municipal or county archives, which will give you lists of names of people of prominence, for which there may well be biographical notes or existing pedigrees or research done already. And universities and schools generated their own records increasingly from the early modern period onwards because there were only two universities in the medieval period, Oxford and Cambridge eventually, so there are going to be less records. But of course you do have alumni lists, people who used to go to the university, many of which were training for a career in the church or in law. So you can then pick up their careers through lists of attorneys in some of our records or in, in a variety of ecclesiastical archives. And that career in the church is very important because once you reach a certain level of society, your career options were a little bit more limited. If you weren't going to inherit land, you'd probably need to look at a status. So law or the church were two of the main options. And there were a variety of ecclesiastical archives. The Borthwick Institute, part of the University of York for the Northern Diocese, and the Church of England Research Centre, Lambeth Palace for the um, Prerogative Courts and uh, Canterbury Diocese for the South. So finally, a couple of top tips. Always work back in time. Try and verify a link where possible. Don't just assume because the surname is familiar or the geography is about right. You may not be able to make that link. But what you do need to do is to try and look at the best case scenario. And if you can't generate that link, well, have a look at the life and times of people who are likely to have lived there. We can't track all of our ancestors back that far, but at least we can start to get a sense of what they were going to be doing at that time. So context and interpretation is key. Secondly, I've mentioned a wide range of sources today, but we have got research guides to back this up that will, first of all, describe some of the sources and list the series in which they can be found and then link you into discovery. And we are trying to create as much searchability as possible with cataloguing projects. And finally, contact us. We are increasingly trying to develop our inquiry services. And if you have a tricky question, we'll try and refer it to a specialist who can at least point you in a different direction or give you an overview about what we've got and what might find elsewhere.